If you have your Bible with you or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 10. This morning we will be in verses 17 to 31. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're working our way through the gospel according to Mark, thinking about what it means to have Jesus as our king. And in this particular section, Jesus is really laying it on the line and showing us what that means in all aspects of our life. Recently, we have looked at what the kingdom tells us about marriage. We have considered what the kingdom tells us about children in one sense. And today we will be considering what the kingdom has to say about money. And if you want any proof that I'm an expository preacher, I offer you this in my defense this morning. I have preached somewhere between 120 and 150 sermons in this congregation. And this will be the first time that I preach about money. And so if something today bothers you, I will submit to you, it has more to say with you than it does me, because I have dodged this subject as long as I can, and Jesus will not let me dodge it today. So with all that in mind, we are going to consider kingdom economics. Let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. This is the word of the Lord. And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There have been many occasions where people in one single moment have lost everything in their name. All of their investments, all of their retirement, all of their security, gone. Just like that. Now, I don't think anyone in this room experienced that moment in 1929 during the Great Depression. I feel pretty safe about that statement. If I'm wrong, you can correct me later. But we've had lots of other opportunities, even in my own lifetime. The crash in the 1980s, the tech bubble in the early 2000s, the financial crisis and recession of 2008. That's why it's very common in the world of finance to hear people preach the principle of diversification. If you're not familiar with that principle, basically, they're saying don't put all your eggs in one basket. Protect yourself. Give yourself some security, making sure not all of your chips are on the table in one place. Don't invest only in one bank. Don't only invest in stocks. Consider bonds. That Right now, people are trying to put more money into gold, put more money into oil, trying to protect themselves by making sure their eggs are on a bunch of different baskets. Diversification. I've been doing a little reading in this world lately, and I was stunned, blown away to learn this truth. Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of our lifetime, thinks diversification is stupid and preaches against it. In his words, you should maximize what you feel like is the best opportunity. Why water it down with your 30th favorite idea? Now, what Warren Buffett has to say about diversification isn't really the point today. But what we find out in Mark chapter 10 is that Jesus lines up a little bit more with Warren Buffett than the common idea of diversification. Jesus says, friends, if you're going to follow him, that's what this passage is about. If you're going to belong to the kingdom, diversification must be thrown out the window. You cannot put all your eggs into multiple baskets. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us, brothers and sisters. Investing in the kingdom takes an all-or-nothing approach. When you come to Jesus, you don't get to put spiritual funds in any other bank account. You don't get to invest in any other strategy. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, you are placing an all-in bet that Jesus is right 
and Jesus is faithful, and Jesus is worth it. We're going to see this truth in two conversations that Jesus has in Mark chapter 10. And then we're going to consider what that means for all of us. In this first conversation Jesus has with the rich young ruler, Jesus shows us the danger with the good life. The danger, the peril of having too many good things, too many riches. Let's read verses 16 to 22 one more time. 17 to 22, excuse me. Now, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You can look at this chapter like a recruiting trip. Like Jesus and disciples are scoping out potential recruits to belong to the kingdom. In this last passage before the one we're in today, the disciples keep kids away from Jesus because they are terrible recruits. They are distractions. They have nothing to offer. They have no influence. They have no wealth. They bring nothing to the table. And Jesus says, don't stop them. They're not only great recruits, they are the textbook example of what you should look like. And then we come to this passage, and we have a five-star recruit, the perfect potential candidate to be a minister of the gospel for Jesus. Some of the disciples are elbowing one another, talking to each other about which disciple they should kick off the team so they can add this rich young ruler to the squad. Nobody's going to remember Bartholomew anyway. Why don't we add this rich young ruler? Let's think about what makes this guy such a great candidate. He has good leadership potential. You actually don't see it in Mark, but in Matthew and Luke, you find out that he is a rich, young ruler. He's rich. He has resources. He can provide to the money bag that Judas is carrying and give them some resources to get around town to share the gospel. That's important. He is a ruler. He has influence in society. When he speaks, people listen. Considering they're carrying around a tax collector and a zealot, that might be a good addition to the team. Good leadership potential. And this guy is asking good questions. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy not only has resources and influence, he cares about what's important. The disciples during this section are the exact opposite. 
They're coming up to Jesus saying, who's the most important? And this guy gets it. How can I live with you forever? So he's got some spiritual inclination that would make it seem like this guy belongs. And Jesus answers the question only like Jesus can, in a way we'd never expect. The biblical Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, this frightens us. It scares us because this isn't the way we think Jesus talks. This verse is not as scary as it sounds. Jesus isn't speaking about his eternal character. Jesus is trying to prepare this man for what he really wants to teach. And just to settle any qualms or fears that may be in this room, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So when he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's not saying I'm not God. He's he's elbowing the rich young ruler and saying, what do you even know about good? Why are you throwing that word around? Let's talk about good. That's when Jesus lists the back half of the Ten Commandments. And we find out This great recruit is even better than we thought. Not only has leadership potential, he's not only asking spiritually great questions, he has impeccable, good character. He tells Jesus in verse 20, I have kept all of these commandments. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't challenge that. He takes him at his word. And he looks at him, verse 21, he looks at him and Jesus loves him. (laughs) So right when you think that a recruiting offer is about to hit the table and this rich young ruler is about to sign the dotted line and join the 12 disciples, make it 13, Jesus says, just one problem. There's, There's one fine print item that we need to discuss All of this good that makes you such a great candidate, by the way, all the good in your life has got to go. Everything that would make you such a great potential candidate to belong to me, I need you to sell it and get rid of it and then come on. The good life has got to go. As Grant Osborne writes, Goodness, brothers and sisters, is inadequate. We need to hear that. Some of us think that we just need to be good, have our resume impeccable. Some of us think that our kids just need to be good. We come to Jesus good, he will tell us, get rid of it. Verse 21, Jesus says, I need you to see this because this is straight Jesus and not Pastor Jeremiah. Jesus says, verse 21, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There's four commands in this verse. Go, sell, give, follow. The way of the cross. This is nothing new. The disciples left their nets. Matthew left the tax booth. 
James and John left their dad and their friends and their business behind. So when the young man asks about eternal life, Jesus gives him the same answer. He gives the same answer that he started his ministry out in Mark chapter 1 when he said, repent and believe. For this rich young ruler, repentance means selling. And believing means knowing and trusting that following Jesus will be worth it. Friends, this call is not unique to the rich young ruler. It applies to every single person in this room. Go, sell, give, follow. Friends, the poorest person in this room is one of the richest people in the world today. The poorest person in this room is one of the richest people in the entire history of the earth. We are not even in the top 1%. If we ask Jesus this question, would he give this richest room any different answer? We must be kidding ourselves if we think he would. We're going to apply this very practically later. But look at what this shows us about repentance. When you hear that word, what do you think about? Automatically, I think most of us hear the word repentance and we think about sin. That repentance is turning from all the bad things in our life, turning from all the sins in our life to follow Jesus. And that is true, but it's not enough. Mark is showing us if you want to follow Jesus, you have to repent of the good. You have to turn from the good life, the good things that are in the way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, I ask every week, has there been a time in your life where you turned from your sins to put your trust in Jesus? But today, I'm not asking that question. Have you, has there ever been a time in your life where you turned away from everything good and followed Jesus? Have you ever forfeited everything in your name so that you can put an all-in bet on Jesus' name? Have you ever abandoned all your securities and all your possessions and everything that you deserved and was owed to you so that you could follow the king? This is what salvation looks like. Repent of the good life and turn to Jesus Christ. Put your trust in his good life and his riches. Can you say that there is no earthly good in your life that's keeping you from loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? There's nothing good. No possession no job, no security, no relationship, no family member, no house, no retirement account. Nothing 
that keeps you from making Jesus Christ number one. Friends, Jesus is saying the good has got to go. And it's easy for us to, to hold so tightly to these things because the lie behind goodness is that these good things bring happiness. And that's a lie. Good things in this world do not satisfy. They always want you, leave you wanting more. It's what Solomon finds out in Ecclesiastes. Everything apart from God is pointless, vanity, riches, nothing. It's the lie this rich young ruler believed. In verse 22, we see the good life is the enemy of true life. In verse 22, we see the only person who leaves Jesus sad. In the entire book of Mark, this is the only guy who comes to Jesus and leaves empty-handed. Because he's not leaving empty-handed. He's leaving empty-hearted. He has too much good in his life right now that he abandons eternal life. Brothers and sisters, please, if the cost of following Jesus tempts you to hedge your bets and put your heart and your your investment spiritually into something in this life to hold on to what this world has to offer, let this man be a warning to you. There's no joy there. If you leave today without an all-in bet on Jesus, you're going to leave sad too. The only way to leave with joy is to leave with Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? There's a second conversation in this passage. It goes beyond the rich young ruler. Jesus and his disciples get together, and like so often happens, things don't get easier with the disciples. When the disciples ask a follow-up question, Jesus doubles down, digs deeper, and gets tougher. The second conversation we see is the difference that God makes in verses 23 to 31. Let's read those verses together. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, 
eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What's the difference between the rich young ruler and the 12 disciples minus Judas? What ultimately gets these guys in who have no qualifications? We know it by now. We've seen enough in the book of Mark. These, these guys don't qualify. But they get in. And this rich young ruler with a great resume, so much to offer, is left out. What is the difference between the two? Friend, it is not a difference in their moral character. It's not a difference in their abilities or their intelligence. Jesus presents this parable to us to show us the difference is God and the grace and the riches of Christ in someone's life. It's not what they have done. It's not who they are. It's who God is. See, three differences that God makes. The first is in salvation. God makes the impossible possible. Let me read that parable one more time again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, just to let that hammer home a little bit is so familiar. Jesus is talking about every person in this room, right? I've already established that. Doesn't matter what your bank account says, you, you fit into this. And people have squirmed under this picture for so long and try to get out from under it, water it down, make it mean something other than what it means. And scholars have used every intellectual resource that they have to to twist this passage to say, you know what, a camel actually could do that. Hogwash. That's the theological term for that. Jesus says it is impossible. It cannot happen. Let me put it in today's terms. You want to be saved, rich person? You got a snowball's chance. You can't do it. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be saved on your own. On your own strength, with your own resources. And if that sounds extreme and knocks you back, it should. The disciples who've been walking with Jesus for a minute now are amazed at this and ask the question, who then can be saved? And we see the difference God makes. With man, it is impossible, but with God, it is possible. All things are possible with God. That's the good news of the gospel. Friend, if you are are worried about what's going to make the difference in your life to bring you from death to life to get you into heaven, you should just be so thankful to hear that it is not about you. But if you put your trust in Christ, he makes the impossible possible. And if you belong to God's family, how, how important is this for us to remember? If you find yourself in the kingdom, if you've answered the call to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it is not because you are Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. It is not because you are better and stronger and godlier and richer and better than anybody. It is the difference that God made in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Thank goodness for that. The difference God makes. The second difference God makes is in discipleship. We need to hear this today. Jesus makes the sacrifice worthwhile. Jesus makes the loss of taking up your cross worth it every time. Verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, we've left all of this. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus makes a promise. People today trying to beat inflation, trying to set themselves up for retirement, try to make it another day. They're just looking for an investment that'll give them 8%, 10%, 15%, 20% if we're crazy. And Jesus says, you go all in on my kingdom and I'll give you 100% return every single time. 100x if you sacrifice for Christ. If you knew that was coming to you, if you knew you could have a 100x return, what, what investment would you not go all in on? But friends, that return is sitting right at our table when Jesus says, come and follow me. And it's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some loss. It's going to take some pain. But Jesus promises it will be worth it. In this life and the life to come. Do you see that? It's not just a promise for heaven. It's not just a promise for eternal life and riches. It's a promise for today. You sacrifice now, you get now. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Jesus gives us hope today and tomorrow. And so in the midst of Jesus laying down the way of the cross and the sacrifice and the demands and the price to pay, he tells us it's not all sacrifice. It's not all losing. Matthew 13, verse 45 to 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Look at that list in verses 29 and 30. I want to challenge you. What have you actually left to follow Jesus? Have you left a house to follow Jesus? Have you left brothers or sisters to follow Jesus? Have you left a father or a mother or children? To follow Jesus? Have you left lands for his sake in the gospel? If we really believe Jesus' word, we would do some of that. What do we need to leave? But if you look at all you've left behind to follow Jesus, if you've done some of that, friends, this resonates with me. 
I haven't been home for going on 15 years. There's not a friend I haven't made that hasn't been left behind. And there's days where that gets tough. And I'll look at it, look at the investments, and it looks like everything's in red. It's all a bunch of loss. Friends, have you ever been there where you feel like the sacrifice is just a lot, it's too much? You're you're just giving away? Jesus says that what is gained outweighs what is lost. You're not in the red when you follow Jesus. You're in the green. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us access to him. He gives us peace beyond understanding. He gives us hope in the midst of suffering. He gives us his word. He gives us a new family. That's what he's talking about here. Today. New brothers and sisters, new mothers, new children. Friends, Jesus is giving you a new way to think about your church. How many of us come into this room and recognize that the people around us are the dividends that God gives us for following Christ? And how many of us take advantage of those dividends? We see it maybe as annoyances or acquaintances. We don't necessarily see them as investments into our bank account. And we don't spend time with these investments, but once a week. And these are the spiritual riches that God has offered to his children. Consider that the next time you walk into this room. How many riches are we leaving on the table? Friends, if you're weighing the cost of the Christ, the cost of the cross, hear me. There's no reason to hedge your bets. There's no incentive to diversify. Jim Elliott is one who put an all-in bet on the cross, and he's one who paid the ultimate cost lost his life and lost everything representing Jesus Christ. And Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott understood kingdom economics. He understood the difference God makes. Friends, in the kingdom, God makes our priorities flip upside down. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We've seen this over and over. The cross flips our priorities upside down. We've seen it in marriage. We've seen it in the way we think about children. And hopefully today we see it in how that flips the way we see money, the way we see finances. Friends, we have been blessed beyond measure physically and spiritually. If this text applies to anybody, it applies to us. I want to ask a question as I try to apply this a couple ways. I want you to stick with me because I've never been here before. I've never said these things before, and I'm going to say them today. But what would it look like if we believed the first were last? 
And what would it look like financially if we believed the last were first? How would that change the way we think about our wealth and our possessions? Well, one church that understood this in Acts chapter 4 responded this way. In verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Sounds like they heard the call to the rich young ruler and applied it to them. When you know how much you receive in the gospel, it becomes a privilege to give to the gospel. So what must we do? I would submit this. Go, sell, give, and follow. Now I'm going to give you two practical ways you can make that happen. One regular and one unique. One that is universal and should happen all the time if you belong to the kingdom, and one that's an above and beyond opportunity for us today. Brothers and sisters, if we believe kingdom economics, the first way we're going to respond to that is by giving the Lord at least a tithe of what he gives you. That word tithe is a Old Testament word. It's an Old Testament principle. It started out when Abraham gave one-tenth of all of his blessings to Melchizedek. And the people of Israel used that as a template for how they would offer what they had to God. And many people today will say, well, we're not in the Old Testament, so we don't have to follow that. We're not under the law. But we've been through Mark long enough and thinking about the way of the cross long enough. The question, brothers and sisters, that I have is, is the way of the cross less demanding or more than the law? Does Jesus ask of us to give less than the people who did not have grace? I find that hard to believe watching Jesus in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. But then consider what Jesus says in the New Testament. This is so under the radar, you miss it. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Watch what Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 23. Do you have that verse? I don't either. I'm going to have to flip there. You want to flip there with me? Let's go to Matthew 23, 23. Just because I forgot it on the screen doesn't mean we're going to forget to look at it. I want you to see it, because the first time I saw this, it bit me like a snake. I could not believe it. Jesus is coming down on the Pharisees, on their self-righteousness. Jesus says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you tithe, mint, and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy 
and faithfulness. Check this out. These you ought to have done, the tithing, without neglecting the others. You see that? Jesus endorses their tithing herbs and says, but that's not all that counts. I want some righteousness. I want some justice. And so Jesus continues this Old Testament tradition. His grace raises the bar and expectation in our life. So practically, if, you're, if you've not been doing this, brothers and sisters, let me give you a way to think about it that might encourage you to consider the way of the cross in your life as it comes to finances. When you tithe, you are making a faith statement about who you believe God is and his faithfulness to reward you 100x whatever you lose. And tithing is a faith statement that says, God can do more with 90% of my life than I can do with 100%. He's wiser and stronger and mightier and more powerful than me, so I'm going to let him take some of my portfolio and give me that 100x. That's what it's about, brothers and sisters. So I just want to encourage you. I've never done this before. Remind you, I've had 120 plus opportunities and I've never taken it. If you belong to this church family, believe that about God. Trust him at his word. He will bless you, your life, a hundred times what you think is possible. And you will regret nothing when you follow him in that way. That should be a regular, everyday promise we hold on to as people of the kingdom. But I want to offer you one that goes above and beyond that. Brothers and sisters, given all that's going on, I believe if we really understand kingdom economics and we really believe God's promise, we need to do something for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And I've recently come across an opportunity to help support the Ukraine Baptist Theological Seminary in their time of need. They are strategically positioned on the west side of Ukraine, on the border, where all the evacuees are on the road crossing over into Poland. They are right there in the thick of it. And they have shut the school down and turned it into a welcome center for those women and children who are crossing into foreign countries, providing beds and food and shelter for these people fleeing the terror that's hit their home. Oddly enough, the Baptist organization that funds and supports the Ukraine Baptist Theological Seminary is here in Missouri, right down the road in St. Louis. And they are collecting funds to help that school on the border of Ukraine provide resources for anybody that they can. So on top of the call to to be a faithful giver, generous giver regularly to your church family, I want to invite us to consider this opportunity, this unique opportunity. For the month of March, anytime you want to join this endeavor, I want to ask you to give to Ukraine. You can fill out a a giving form, put it in to the First Baptist Church of Carl Junction with a memo line to Ukraine. And each week, we're going to send funds 
to the Ukraine Baptist Theological Seminary to help these people in this major crisis. And, and to show you where my heart is at, I, we have talked about this with the missions team. And the missions team has uh, an account for missions opportunities. And we are going to match every dollar that's given to the Ukraine Baptist Theological Seminary in the month of March to encourage you to be a part of what God's doing, to care for the least of these like we've been talking about in the book of Mark. Brothers and sisters, how can we believe kingdom economics? It's the question Paul was asking the Corinthians when there was a major crisis. And he pointed to the gospel with the riches that Jesus gave them as a reason to join the mission. And then after laying out the challenge, just like I did, this is how Paul ends the challenge. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 24. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul says, if you really believe this, prove it by your love. Prove it by placing an all-in bet on the gospel. Friends, you have two options this morning as we leave. You can leave what I've just said offended and frustrated and sad like the rich young ruler. But take note of this passage and what that says about your heart. Or you can hear all of this and leave today joyful, even in loss and sacrifice, because you know the riches that you have waiting for you in this life and in the life to come. How you leave, that's up to you. But let us hear the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and respond accordingly. Let us pray.